Thank you. Is this good? Yeah. Okay. So uh, this, I'm really happy that our lectionary readings right now are giving us time to spend with the resurrection because it feels like Easter Sunday is just too short to really capture the importance of this event for us. In fact, the resurrection, capital letters in both words, is really the one of the defining and distinguishing events of Christianity. It is one of the things that distinguishes uh, Christianity, and it means that you can't just think of Jesus as a, a wise teacher like Buddha, or even the giver of a new covenant like Abraham or Moses because it changes everything. So it's really important that we come to grips with, uh, the, with, with Jesus. I just realized, did you get my, I forgot one of my things. So today we're, we're, our story is about Thomas. And it, oftentimes, what, what, is the, what is the moniker that's usually attached to Thomas? Doubting Thomas, yeah. I figure, I think Thomas kind of gets a bad rap personally. And so um, I'm here today in praise of sincere doubt. And I'll tell you where that comes from a little bit later. Because I just think that as I was reading and spending time with Thomas, I kind of began to get a little affection for him. And Thomas is actually a kind of nickname that means the twin in Aramaic, Talma is uh, Aramaic. And then I was thinking, hey, that's not even fair. Like we just call him Thomas the twin. Like he didn't, he had nothing else about him that was interesting other than the fact that he was a twin. So I was a little offended on his behalf. And then I remembered my mom. My mom's nickname was Nena, and that means little girl. And so even when she was dying a few years ago, 90 years old, all the people who really, really loved her called her Nena. And it didn't mean that she was always a little girl, but it just meant that that was the name of affection. So I'm gonna call him Telma today because I feel like I wanna change the story about doubting Thomas. So who is Telma? We actually don't know a lot about him, but John tells us the most about him. And, oh, another cool thing about Telma, I have to go back here. So I was looking it up about him and actually it's, it seems that his first name was Judas. So Judas Telma. So that's why he was called the twin because like, Jesus' 12 disciples, there were three Judases. Can you believe it? I mean, what a common name. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So we're okay to call him Talma. Anyway, so Talma, as I was thinking about him, one of the pictures that came to me, and I hope that you'll forgive me for um, applying a, a Myers-Briggs personality test to Talma, but I sort of began to think of him as somebody who is um, an ISTJ. So that means he's an in... Uh, introvert who's a sense he, he likes he gets his energy from kind of being alone mostly and thinking in his head he's an s he's a real sensor he just needs to see and feel and you know just the facts ma'am a thinker it's got to make sense in his head before it can make sense anywhere else and he's a j he just likes to know what's happening please like let's not make this up as we're going along i want a plan please and so the first time that we actually are introduced to telma is uh in John 11 at the story that Patty was telling us a little while ago about the raising of Lazarus. So after Lazarus had died, uh, Jesus said to his disciple, okay, let's go to Judah. And he'd been telling his disciples, you know, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna die. And tell them I actually heard him. And so he said to his disciples, okay, come on, let's go. Let's just die with him. You know, he's gonna get stoned, we're gonna die with him. So Thomas is a Telma is a realist. He's a, a loyal realist. He understands what's happening. 
The other time that we come across him is in the upper room discourses when Jesus is talking to his disciples and telling them that he is going away and he's trying to prepare them for them. And Telmat, you know, he's got the courage to lift up his hand and he says, uh, we, we don't know where you're going. How, how can we know the way? And then Jesus responds to him and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Telma. So this is Telma. He just like needs to know. So here we are. I sort of think of him as being a, well, the loyalist, uh, the loyal realist, a kind of black and white thinker. He just needs to have certainty. And I think Telma offers 21st uh, century listeners and doubters such hope. Actually, this little vignette that we came, I sort of think of it as a, uh, as a summary of all of the Gospel of John. Throughout the entire Gospel of John, people have been encountering Jesus as this charismatic, brilliant, wise person, but Jesus always pushes them a little further than they're comfortable with to make a decision about, do you really believe I am who I say I am? And so this kind of sums it up that, that Jesus is doing that to tell Ma again, and then we see Talma's reaction and how he states his belief. So I, my title actually today comes from a book that I read a while ago called In Praise of Doubt by uh, Peter Berger and Anton Zitterfield. I don't know if you know this person, but some of you may know and hate Peter Berger. He's the guy who invented the notion of social constructionism. So we you know, kind of get uncomfortable with him, but I thought it was a really interesting book and the, uh, Peter Berger and uh, his colleague are sociologists at Boston University. And the, the, their premise here is that pluralism in our modern world is one of the features that we have and that we have to come to grips with what are we going to do with all the pluralistic ideas that are out there. People are no longer are born into a religion or born into a a sort of like world belief system, they're actually now at a point where people choose their world belief systems. And that there's a real, he creates a tension between an extremism of fundamentalism, both secular and religious, and relativism or postmodern almost nihilism. And he says that neither one are really cognitively tenable in a world where you want to sort of move forward and, and move on. In fundamentalism, he says, there's a kind of like monopoly of truth. You have to believe what we believe or you're out. Doubt is shunned and suppressed. And that people choose the community of faith. They choose different communities of faith based on what is believed, but it becomes very fractured. On the other hand, in relativism, there's no big T truth anymore. And so it's kind of like doubt becomes almost enshrined as a way of being, a way of thinking, which can be absolutely paralyzing cognitively and lead to real indifference and sort of nihilism in your views and, and polarization. People then choose their community of faith, if you like, by the narrative that they relate to or the hashtag that they belong to. So it becomes quite fractured. So he says they're, they're position is that actually there's this place in between which is called sincere doubt. And sincere doubt is just the capacity to pause before judging. It's the capacity to suspend and say, huh, that's interesting, tell me more. And so I want to say that today, um, I think of Thomas as being somebody who was our first, like an obvious sincere doubter. He proposed, he had some counterfactuals that he just needed to have answered, 
And when he discovered them, he was able to completely identify with them. One of the other things that um, Berger says is that actually when people are searching for truth, what they really need and what the sincere doubter is always looking for is something that is reliable, trustworthy, and um, somehow meaningful in their lives. So that is the essence of truth. And I think that Thomas found that. And the first point I want to make in our um, story today is actually the fact that Thomas was in a community when he expressed his doubt and he didn't get shunned and shut down by his brothers. They held him and they were able to say, wait. So I hope that our community will be a place where we can harbor sincere doubters and where we can deal with uncertainty of knowing the absolute truth. But I, I want to spend my time today talking about the hope that I think this story gives us both to non-believing doubters and to believing doubters. I'm just gonna address very quickly the hope for non-believing doubters. What do I mean by non-believing doubters? These are people who don't really, aren't really sure about all the claims of Christianity say about Jesus. They're hard to take sometimes. I remember listening to a comedy, um, a stand-up comic one time who was making fun of being a Christian and all these crazy things you had to believe like virgin birth and walking on the water and the resurrection, you know, and I thought, yeah, it's comical. It, it, I mean, it's, it sounds a little bit ridiculous. But if you're here today, I think it's because you, like many of Jesus' listeners at the beginning, are kind of attracted to Jesus. I mean, he was a brilliant, amazing, charismatic person. But you need to come to grips with who is Jesus and is he who we say he is. I hope that, um, like Thelma, you will come to a place where you kind of understand what is at stake. Oops, that means I'm way over time, right? No, <laughs> okay. Understand what is at stake and be willing to take a risk on Jesus. I want to just address, though, one of the things that I think is often said, and that is that, in fact, the whole idea of the resurrection was a fabrication by his disciples after the fact to whitewash the fact that Jesus died as a total failure. He was hung as a criminal and died as a total failure. I just want to say that that is actually doesn't make any sense at all when you think about what the worldview was of the people in those days. It's not that they were more gullible than we are now. Everybody knew that, that dead people don't rise again. It's not like there was any expectation built in anywhere that this would happen. Ghosts, maybe, but resurrection from the dead, physical body, it just wasn't an expectation that they could have thought of imaginatively. And as good Jews, they had no religious expectation that would in any way account for one person, their Messiah, rising from the dead. They did believe in the resurrection, but it was going to happen at the end, end, end of time, and it was going to be all the righteous people all at once. So there was no way that they could have sort of imagined that Jesus would rise from the dead or that would be there physically, maybe a ghost, but this person, this, the Gospels make a great deal of the physicality of what he, he was. So it doesn't really make sense that they would just make this up after the fact. And quite honestly, Nothing other than the resurrection really explains the radical change in worldview and radicalization, I would say, of his disciples overnight. Um, I want to just, if you're interested in pursuing this further, I'd like you to, I'd like to point you to a, a resource that I found super helpful. It's called The Case for Christ. 
And it's by a journalist, a legal journalist, who set out actually to disprove the fact that Jesus had re resurrected from the dead and ended up believing. But it's beautifully written, and I found it really helpful. But today I really want to focus on the hope for believing doubters, like Tauma. The story of Tauma is in fact directed to believing doubters. That's who Jesus was interested in. Jesus didn't, when he was resurrected, he didn't go and show himself to Pilate or Herod or Caiaphas and say, you see, I'm right and you're wrong. He didn't. He only went and showed himself lovingly to his disciples, to his beloved followers. And I think Telma was one of the disciples, well, it's actually cool if you read all of them, every single personality, Jesus met every one of them in their place. And I, I, I'm astounded by Telma because he took such a long journey. He went from his head to his heart instantaneously when he met the risen Jesus. So I want to just maybe walk through the passage and uh, I'm gonna start off just the context again. So this is the first day. It says the, the evening of that first day. So remember, Jesus had been crucified three days earlier. The disciples were devastated horrified. I don't, I think I'm running out of adjectives to describe what it must have felt like for them. They were huddled together behind locked doors. But earlier that day, something strange had happened. Their friend Mary had gone to the, to the um, tomb. And she went there and Jesus body was no longer there. So she went running to the disciples crying and said they've taken the Lord's body. And so Peter and John went running to the tomb to see what happened. And they looked in there and they were like, okay, this doesn't look like the body was taken because all the linen cloths are still there. You would never like unwrap a body and then just take a naked body. That doesn't happen. So none of it made sense. It didn't fit with somebody who had stolen the body, but it wasn't really clear what had happened either. So they come back and they're perplexed. It's the evening, okay? They're still behind locked doors because they're still afraid, but they're kind of, to their um, devastation is added this kind of perplexity, like what's happening? And then suddenly Jesus is standing among them. How did he get there? He didn't come through the locked door, but he's there physically among them. And he says to them, Shalom. And he shows them his hands and he shows them his side. And they are overjoyed when they see him. I don't know, um, oh, and then he breathes on them, right? Thank you. And he says to them, I'm gonna come back. Just, this is, he just, he says, he sends them out. He begins, he says, now that you believe, go. Okay, so he sends them out. So just, I don't know why Telma wasn't with them. This is where I figured he was probably the introvert that just needed to process things alone. Like the grief was overwhelming is what I'm thinking for Telma. And then the fact that the, the, then there's this report that he might be alive was like, that's like, none of this make, talk about cognitive dissonance. This is not making sense. And I'm guessing he just needed to process this alone. So I'm thinking that that's why Ma was not with them. So you can see my Aramaic for the twin there. And they must have been like, he comes and all they're excited. They said, Jesus came and he showed us his hands and he showed us his side. And he's like, unless I put my finger into those wounds 
And unless I put my hand into his side, I'm not believing. I'm not going to be taken by this. You didn't even recognize him at first because I think Jesus was like, everybody who met Jesus after he died was like, whoa, oh, it is you. There was something about him that was different. He wasn't like, he didn't look exactly the same, but he, he was recognizable, but there was something totally different about him. And, and Tom Mom must have been thinking, this could be an imposter. Like, I'm, I'm not getting, you know, this has got to be make real for me. So I think that he's just clinging to that. And the other thing I'm thinking about Toma is that he must have been kind of realizing everything that was a state, at stake for this belief or not. If Jesus was really dead, he had just spent three years of his life where he left everything to follow this person. He thought he was the Messiah. He thought he was going to be the one who was going to liberate Israel. And if he was dead, he had to come to terms with this. He had to go back home and show his face and say, I was wrong. It's like he needed to make sense of his past. And if he was alive, that also changes everything. That means that nothing can be the same in the future anymore, and his past all makes sense. It's like the sincere doubter is really questioning, what, is, what do I trust in? He was asking a question of trust. So on the eighth day, when Jesus comes to him, I love the way that Jesus meets Toma exactly where he is. He shows him his hands and his side. He says, Toma, put your finger in, put your hand in my side. I don't think Toma really did that. I think that he, he kind of realized it must have been astounding for him to recognize that Jesus had heard his doubt. And that Jesus not only heard what he was saying to his brothers, but Jesus probably heard all the anguish and the realization that he had brought into that doubt. Everything that was a state, at stake for that doubt. And he answered with one of the most eloquent and complete understandings of who Jesus is that is stated in the book of John, and that is, my master and my God. You've probably heard that saying that the longest journey is the world is the 18 inch journey between your head and your heart. Talma took that journey in an instant. In an instant, he realized my master and my God. I wonder for us sometimes, we grew up in a different context most of us have been experienced you know exposed to the idea of resurrection we just finished saying the apostles creed that, that he was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the father we say that every week but sometimes i wonder if it's just a proposition in our head that we've kind of gotten used to hearing and that we have to take the journey of saying if it's true what does that mean Take that journey from the head to the heart. Thomas' journey, Thomas' journey did not just end with his heart. It was a journey that went to his hands and his feet. He was also sent out. Tradition tells us that Thomas went as far as India 
and was the evangelizer of India. And we have Talma to thank for Anita and <laughs> Tony and Abby and Evelyn to be with us here today because they are the legacy of Talma in India, right? And, you know, he brought the gospel to India and he's bringing it to us today. So as we finish, I want to just take a few minutes to give you to think about what doubt do you have that's holding you back from giving you 100% to the risen Lord? Or what limiting belief do you have? And I want you to just hold that in front of Jesus and say to him your doubt. I want to remind you that Jesus says it's okay to be a sincere doubter. It's a good place to be. And Jesus will meet you in that place of sincere doubt. He wants you to know in your heart of heart, in your hand of hand, in your feet of feet, that he is trustworthy, reliable, solid that believing in him gives meaning to our past lives, our future lives, and every decision that we need to make, even when it's difficult. Expect to be in Jesus' masterclass of faith. Expect Jesus to push you beyond your comfortable faith right now to take that next step to move you into action. But the best part of all is the benediction he gives us. He says, blessed are those who even though they have not seen me physically or experienced me physically, still believe. So in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, blessed are you.